Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and it is Friday. Therefore, we are in the middle of our journey through Matthew. Well, mostly towards the end of it now. We are starting the 23rd chapter, and we are going to kick it off with a huge chunk of text. And uh, we have got a lot of material. So I had been thinking, do I want to handle all 36 of these verses in today's show? Or do I want to split it up into two sections? And I'm thinking that's what I'm going to do. I think what we'll do is work through uh, to the 22nd verse today, and then we'll pick up next week and do 23 through the end. And uh, if we can kind of work through the stuff quicker next week, and we might pick up the next little portion that Jesus gives us uh, with the lament over Jerusalem. But I want to do the text, it's due diligence, and I want to really focus on uh, the you know what Jesus is saying here, and there is a lot to be said. And just off the you know premise that if I happen to get through verse twenty two and I've said all I want to say, and we are only fifteen or so minutes in, then we might just kick on and go through the rest. But I don't see that for foresee that happening. So um, we've got a lot to handle, and uh, it's a big text. It's probably one of the biggest sections in uh, this portion of Matthew, and really. Uh, a lot of other things are really kind of nicely, com- you know, segregated into their own little compartments and we can work through them um, part by part. But this is a big one here. So it's the seven woes to the Pharisees and scribes or scribes and Pharisees, depending on how you want to read it. Uh, this is the opening of chapter 23. We'll begin with the first verse. So let's kick off here. Uh, when Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. But not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and the back seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. 
but you do not be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shout, shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much as a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you. Blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple, that which has made made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that which makes the gift sacred? So you yourselves swear by the altar, swears by it, and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So we've got the seven woes here. We've worked through a few of those uh, in the reading of the text. We're going to pause on verse 22 here. Uh, so let's kind of dig into this. And like I said, if we get through a majority of this text and we still have time left, then we'll work through the rest. But if need be, and we'll just pause at verse 23 and pick that up next week. So I want to always do the due diligence of the text. So 23 is an exacerbated at the Pharisees of skinnity. Uh, Jesus makes his last word about them to be sustained in a scathing condemnation. Now, I have actually ran into individuals who... Uh, come from the Pentecostal charismatic movement stating that this portion, this entirety of text is actually used to demonstrate that prophecy is still active in the world. And they use verses 34, which we'll talk about next week if we have don't have time today, as a standing by. But to understand that verse in the greater context, you have to go back to verse 1. You have to know who the audience is and who is the object of, that Jesus is talking about. The audience is is essentially threefold. He's talking to the crowds and to his disciples. That's the f- major focus. But also the Pharisees and scribes that are standing by. They are the object, but they are also a part of the audience. The scribes and the Pharisees are the focus of this entirety. And uh, to unpack 34 in greater detail, we'll look at that closer. But it just shows us that this is a, a verse that should be not used should not be used to uh, advocate for the office of prophet still being present. And I find it to just be an atrocious handling of the text when one tries to make this claim. But again, feelings uh, are, you know, are hurt when you try to deliver true hermeneutical uh, truth to to a person. And so they, they get all bent out of shape and they cry a little bit about it. And in fact, I got a lot of hate for it. Um, but you know, it's all fun and game. So going on here in verse two, Jesus says they sit on the seat of Moses. Uh, Jesus does not deny that the Pharisees and scribes are the successors to Moses and they teach with his authority. 
uh, they just grants that Jesus lumbasts them for their mis, uh, misinterpreted and poor stewardship of the sacred duties that have been entrusted to them. They are miserable stewards, and they have neglected and and twisted what has been given to them to see over. The sacraments and words are effective because Christ's institution and command, even if they are administered by evil men. And so this is uh, something that Luther quotes here on this passage. And it's interesting because it goes to show that throughout the church age, even though a pastor might be corrupt or evil, it does not diminish or, or reduce the power that the uh, sacraments carry. And so the Pharisees and scribes, would have administered said sacraments and still the sacraments would have been holy even though the Pharisees and scribes were deemed to be bad stewards, evil men, and uh, and really poor uses of what they were uh, charged with. So, So he goes on and he says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, right? That's the command that must be understood in light of Jesus' disagreement with and the corrections of the pharisaical teachings elsewhere, going back in the earlier chapters of Matthew, Jesus stresses that insofar as what the Pharisees teach is rightly interpreted and uphold God's word, their teaching should be affirmed and followed. So it's almost one of those things that they are uh, speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They are saying and doing one thing, and then they themselves do a completely different thing. But then he goes on to further demonstrate how much they place an emphasis on things that aren't actually according to God's word. So they will create these burdens that are too heavy to bear and place them upon people's shoulders. They make things impossible based upon the law. And that is how they, you know, essentially advocate for teaching. That's their entire premise. So because the Pharisees often went beyond God's commands to when they interpreted the law, Jesus describes them as laying those heavy burdens on the people. And that's really exactly what I just said. It's one of those markers that is always about the law and it's about doing these things. And I, I, I shall I say it? I think I shall. I came across a video last night and it was a famous Calvinist preacher. I'm not going to name names, but he made a comment that, you know, when you're in a Bible study or you're reading the Bible, you should not ask, what does this mean to me? Nobody cares about your personal interpretation. What you should be asking is who does this, uh, you know, who was the original audience? What's the original context? What did Paul or Peter or Jesus mean by saying this or writing this? What, you know, what was that audience supposed to expect from this letter or, you know, passage? And I got to think and I said, you know, that's, that's interesting on one hand because, it's it it's trying to remove us from the scripture, but scriptures were given as a revelation from God to man. And contextually, some of these things have first and second century Israelite minds, you know, in mind when they were written and spoken of. Some of this stuff goes back to pre-Christ. You know, as so we go through the Old Testament, they had very specific context by which they were administered. For instance, if you go through the Torah you will read that those laws were given to Israel in a very specific context. They don't really have much meaning in today's world. But those are things to be considered as you read through Scripture because it is well for us to understand the immediate context, but we can also look back and say, well, what is that doing to us today? 
And I think one thing we've really fail at as a church by and large is when we assert that the scriptures shouldn't have an impact on us because what it's doing is it's uh, we're, we're creating this sort of paradigm or this law based focus where it has meaning for us, but we can't ask what that meaning is. And it should only have meaning for the people in the immediate context by which it was written to. And I find that to be problematic, especially when we read through these types of passages, because yes, the Pharisees and scribes were the immediate context and audience and object of what Jesus is saying. However, that the practices that they had have impacts in today's world. They still impact and can cause problems by modern teachers who use and levy the law more so than they should, more so than they do the gospel, right? So the teachings often exceed what scripture gives. Um, another instance could be especially modern day preachers who, who harp on tithing and ensuring that you give your 10%. And scripture would argue against that through and through. So when we exceed what scripture tells us, we are left with, you know, what the Pharisees and scribes are doing. And that's, you know, leveling a law that isn't biblical by any means and creating this burden to be placed on people's shoulders. And they don't bother to help them. They don't bother uh, they're not willing to move or assist or anything of that nature. It is strictly, you know, a means by which they can uh, maybe sleep better at night, right? Because they they don't want to get involved. Oh, you've committed a heinous sin. You're living under the law now. This is, you know, this is your problem. You better be doing these things and offering these sacrifices in order to please God again. And I'm not going to really do anything to help you. So moving on here into verse. Five again. I'm probably going to butcher this word. The uh, philanthropies, basically a small leather box containing scriptural verses. Uh, they were tied around one's forehead or arms. This is going back to Deuteronomy six. Uh, the fl- uh, fringer- fringes, these tassels containing blue strands that Jews attached to the corners of their garments to remind them of the Ten Commandments, as Numbers fifteen points to. So. These were devices used to kind of keep the scriptures always close. And it's one of those things like to, you know, remember it in your head and write it upon your heart. And yet they fail to do this. They fail to make that head heart connection. They just leave it all in their heads and become haughty and decide that it best, you know, would be better for people to live such strict legalistic lives in order for them to get into heaven because they based everything off of one's behavior or, and or good works. So moving on to uh, verses 6 and 8, or 6 through 8, I should say. And they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats of the synagogues. Uh, I think I said back seats when I read the text, so it's best seats. Um, I should probably look at the text closer. But I also have to remember uh, I'm looking at two different screens here from like three or four feet away, so the text was a little small. Uh, so they want the best seats in the synagogue. They like to be greeted in the marketplace. They like to be called rabbis, but you are not to be called rabbi. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that father in uh, heaven here on uh, verse 9 in just a moment. But these are the greetings. The Pharisees flaunted the privileges of their teachings that the office could afford them, misusing them to exploit others. 
they were very flamboyant in their position. They kind of sat themselves higher than everybody else and lorded over them due to their knowledge and wealth that the position afforded them. So this was, you know, this was a great disservice to the people. They should have seen themselves as servants rather than to be served. And they looked at themselves of having power and authority and therefore the people should serve them and recognize them and provide the very best for them. This is the great contrast between them and Jesus. Jesus comes not to be served, but to serve and finds himself often in some of the more lowly parts uh, of, of society, talking with some of these lower pe- people in the societal rings, um, whereas the Pharisees would have absolutely nothing to do with those individuals. So then it goes on, Jesus says here in verse 8, that you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. So that one teacher, Jesus, being, of course, the one who is authoritative among the Christians and under his headship, all Christians, especially the leaders, exhibit uh, the fraternal love and respect for others. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole, like, you know, aspect of how the church hierarchy is structured. Uh, I do believe churches need hierarchy. I do believe that there must be positions of pastors and bishops and deacons and people who have authority uh, over the church in order for it to be governed uh, according to the apostolic traditions. I do certainly absolutely 100% believe that. Um, Slightly contrasting from the Roman Catholic Church, I don't believe that there should just be one person over the whole entire church, but I do see the need for governance over the church body. And so, you know, in our, in my little denomination, actually I found out, I think we're the third or fourth biggest Lutheran denomination. We're just very quiet about it um, in the U S and we don't have like people over the, the regions. We have regional support teams and then we have like a governing body of leaders, but they have really no, absolute authority, which I think can be problematic, but also can be helpful for the churches as the churches are given the control to govern themselves through church councils and uh, other means. So the council that I'm in is different than like how the Missouri Senate is structured where there's bishops and district teams that are set up to, you know, kind of uh, control and help, you know, establish the authority within the church body. And so It can have some problems. Obviously, it allows churches to be much more free in what they decide and to move away from the confessions easier than if there were, you know, set guidelines and rules for the church to be within that denominational senate that they have to believe and teach a certain manner. Um, You might find differing views if you go to different Missouri senates, but by and large, you're going to find they will all be confessionally based and they will all have a, a certain. Uh, agreed upon structure of worship and uh, systems of belief. If you go to different LCMC churches, which is what I'm a part of, you'll find very confessionally based Lutheran churches like mine is, and then you'll find ones that are far more progressive or laxed uh, than mine, and they often have far different, you know, uh, foundations of beliefs. And I, I think that's where the problem comes in. There's no coherence, and there's no um, set guidelines by which churches ought to govern themselves. It's recommended that we adhere to the confessions, but it is not enforced. Whereas like with the Roman Catholic church, 
the Pope has the ultimate authority over all the churches, and then you have all the bishops and deacons moving down from him that essentially work under the guidance of the Pope. And you can argue that the Pope is unbiblical, but I do see how Peter was given to be the, you know, where the church was built upon his proclamation. And I think Peter and the apostles having their, you know, established authority in the early church and the establishment that Paul creates amongst the Gentile churches, there had to be, you know, leadership in place. There had to be some sort of hierarchical leadership to, to establish the church and move it forward through the centuries. If Paul went and planted a church and then just said, okay, good luck, and then never placed people in charge of, of the order, it would be utter chaos and the church wouldn't survive but a few weeks or months maybe. But because sound biblical teachers were given the authority to lead the church, they had the ability to lead the church and respond and coordinate with other leaders in uh, when issues would arise. So there has to be leadership in the church. And... But when it comes to a passage like verse 8, it is not that those leaders are bad. It is that they have one person that they look towards, and that is Christ, who has the ultimate authority over all things, and that is Jesus. And so being a leader in a church, myself being a pastor, I'm, uh, I answer to my counsel, but I have the authority of leading my church, and therefore all of my governance comes through the Word of God. And so I turn to Christ for my answers. My church council and I, we mutually look to each other to help us, you know, kind of govern the church forward into the new age. And so we turn and insert what does the Bible say and how can we use that as we go forward. So moving on here, verses 9 and 10 can get a little bit uh, grumpy, if you would. Some people like to use these verses to kind of push a narrative. Uh, verse 9, and you and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And that's the verse that gets kind of stuck there in the mud. Uh, 10 goes on, neither call your instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Uh, then he goes on to state, the greatest among you shall be your servant. So the um, the calling your man, no man father, this is not speaking of biological relationships if you have a dad, you may call him your father. It is not restricting you from doing so. Uh, it was just simply this. In ancient Judaism, the father, quote-unquote, referred to esteemed teachers and the revered dead. And so father was always a title given to you know, people with an authoritative position. And this was given as a means by um, the the church, you know, especially in the early age that they would call their pastor father and things like that. And there's a lot of discrepancies with that. Obviously out of the Lutheran circle, we would assert that we don't call any sort of pastoral leader father. Um, it's usually reverend or pastor. I usually like the title pastor. If I'm looking for like a funeral service or having to do some sort of community aspect, they'll often title me as Reverend Alex, but I don't really, I mean, it's not a title that I actively seek. I just simply just put down pastor and I'm happy with it. But the Roman Catholics I know have their own positioning on a verse like this. I personally just don't have their, all of their notes at the tips of my fingertips, nor can I tell you why or how they can defend it. So uh, I know I have one particular uh, loyal Roman Catholic church listener. So you know who you are, shoot me a DM and let me know and I can auto-correct it <laughs> for next week. So 
Um, moving on into verse 11, the greatest among you shall be the servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Pretty straightforward teaching. Uh, the one who leads the way uh, for the instructor. Uh, well, going back to verse 10, I should say, neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ, that being the one who leads the way. Christ is the way. The instruction might take place in a group or as a school or in a church today. And through tutoring and mentorship, this is how they are constructed. But this is not what Jesus is referring to. What he's referring to is the way to God. Because Jesus is God's son, he is the scripture's ultimate interpreter and the revealer of divine things. Only he teaches that with full authority. Jesus previously defines the greatness in terms of humble service. Here he adds a promise. God will exalt those who humbly serve for his sake. In contrast, the proud will be abased. So this is the time when Jesus kind of concludes that with that you know, promise. Those who do humble themselves will be exalted. So we've talked about it previously on the show, living a life that is a, you know, the stripping of oneself, the removal of one's pride, and uh, the demonstration that you can live in service to others. That is the, what Jesus is saying through a lot of these passages. So then we actually get to the first woe. So he kind of does all this to set up everything. Uh, and then we get to the first woe here in verse 13. Uh, such woes will often appear in the Old Testament from prophets like Amos and Isaiah and Micah uh, and function as a negative counterpart to the Beatitudes or blessings. Jesus promises throughout Matthew, most notably in verse five or chapter 5, the first six woes are presented as pairs in themselves. And uh, we'll see the matters... Uh, We'll see other issues uh, concluded here later on. But these first are uh, established in verses 13 and 15. And then we've got the prosolette in 16 through 24, matters of the law and cleansing. So verse 13, the woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. Uh, this is really, again, the shutting out of the kingdom by demanding a righteousness based on human achievement and by insisting on obedience on human rather than on divine commandments. So it's the establishment that you have become better uh, in of yourself than by the things and workings of God. You have established that you can earn your righteousness and that there is, in fact, the demand that righteousness can be based upon your achievement. And that's what the Pharisees are trying to establish. They have shut the kingdom of God in the people's face and allow it to be, you know, only for those who they deem worthy. So verse 14 uh, essentially moves into that. Um, funny enough, if you have an ESV Bible, you won't find verse 14 in here. You'll go right to 15. Uh, let's see if I can dig up verse 14 in another translation for you. So I had to dig out my old King James here. This is the 1900 edition. Uh, it's woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses for a uh, pretense to make longer prayer. Therefore ye shall receive greater damnation. Again, there's a lot of reason cont uh, to, for contextual criticism why that's excluded in the newer translations. Probably more simply that uh, some of the other manuscripts that we base the ESV off of do not carry that. Um, and so we move on to verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. 
And when they become a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child as hell as yourselves. So verses um, 15 here, we're traveling, uh, the embodying emboldenment of the region of the Maccabees of first century Judaism was mission minded, though not as zealous as proselytizing as Christianity has become. The Pharisees zeal for making uh, the converts was laudable, but the commit, the content for their preaching was just uh, deficit. So the first century was driven around missionary work and similar to what we as Christians do, but they often would have more false converts and uh, they would try and essentially build people into their little system. And that's why they make them as a child of hell much more, twice as much as Jesus says here, as a child of hell as you yourselves do. So moving on to verse 16, uh, 16 through 22, Jesus refers to his adversaries as practice by swearing to the sacred things, the temple, its gold, and its altar, rather than by God's name, so as to avoid breaking the second commandment. Jesus dismisses such hypocrisy. So the blind guys, ironic in the view of their responsibility to lead Israel, they could not even recognize the Messiah. And verse 17, God's presence as indicated in 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30, made the temple holy, not its furnishings. And the temple's altar is similarly greater than the gifts that are placed on it for its source of an offering's holiness. It is the height of the presupposition to imagine that an offering placed on the altar gives value to God's temple. Such, All such vows ultimately invoke God's name, and are to be used cautiously as we look back in the earlier chapters, uh, especially five. Jesus warns his followers against making such frivolous ones as indicated. So the second half of the woes here point to how people have looked at the objects within the temple rather than the temple itself. The objects they, in the Pharisees' eyes, make the temple holy versus the actual temple itself being holy, the altar and the gold and the presence of God there. Um, so those things are what makes the temple holy, the altar, the temple itself, the gold. That's what it ought to be the things to not swear by. Instead, um, the Pharisees are allowing the, these individuals to come in and make uh, vows or make swearing oaths off of the objects placed upon them and uh, it gets really muddy again as they have distorted the entirety of what God has originally given to them and the promises going all the way back to the Torah. So, again, the Pharisees really kind of dig themselves this big hole over the centuries. And it's pretty hard to get out of it when they are, you know, uh, seen by many as being these holier than thou's. They are. Uh, they're sought as highly esteemed by people, mostly because, as Jesus calls them, whitewashed tombs. They are holy and, and ornate on the outside, but dead and decaying on the inside. They have created this persona that they are the chosen people of God, and they have the right to either you know, level the law upon people or, or give them unmanageable burdens or to free them from said burdens, which they don't do very often unless the person is wealthy. So it is an interesting set of text here as we will work through the next set of woes next week, but I wanted to really start to dig into that. Again, like I said, the, that first opening chunk of text is really what took us a long time. The woe is pretty straightforward. 
you know, they, they talk about in detail uh, exactly what they are doing wrong. And so we shouldn't have to spend a whole lot of time uh, until we get to probably 29 through 36 next week. So kind of that middle section of woes that we'll deal with pretty straightforward and uh, pretty clean, but we'll talk, you know, as, as we need to. So ladies and gentlemen, hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you're in church on Sunday. Check out our new show on Wednesdays as we are working through social media issues and the problems of teaching and uh, being a part of those ministries on social media and check out Saturday's show for the reading the Bible in a year. And I hope you guys have a great weekend. God bless. We'll see you all later. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.